All right, well, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. We have camped on verse 1 for the last couple of weeks. We will revisit it tonight, but we will move on. But we want you to realize that the first three chapters, especially of this book, are very important. So, yes, we have set aside a little extra time to deal with them. But if you're new with us, let me just start off by saying the word Genesis comes from a Greek word that means origin or beginning. And as we've already pointed out, every major doctrine in the Bible starts in the book of Genesis, which is why an attack on the book of Genesis is really attack an attack on all the Word of God. You know, many look at Genesis as the foundation for the Old Testament, but don't really see its importance for New Testament Christians. We need to understand that there are at least 165 passages in Genesis that are either directly quoted or are alluded to, referenced to, in the New Testament. Many of these are quoted more than once, so there are at least 200 quotations or allusions to Genesis in the New Testament, which means this book is very important to New Testament believers. Not only is it vital to our Christianity, it's vital for our society. Let me read to you something that we've just finished our foundation series by Ken Ham, but let me read to you a portion of the introduction to that series once again. Of course, the whole series is built on Psalm 11, verse 3 which asks, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And Ken Ham says, and I quote, if you destroy the foundations of anything, the structure will collapse. If you want to destroy any building, you are guaranteed early success if you destroy the foundations. Likewise, if anyone wants to destroy Christianity, then destroy the foundations established in the book of Genesis. Is it any wonder that Satan is attacking Genesis more than any other book in this era of history? The biblical doctrine of origins, as contained in the book of Genesis, is foundational to all other doctrines of Scripture. Every single biblical doctrine of theology, directly or indirectly, ultimately has its basis in the book of Genesis. Refute or undermine in any way the biblical doctrine of origins, and the rest of the Bible is compromised. Genesis is the only book that provides an account of the origin of all the basic entities of life and the universe— The origin of life, of man, of government, of marriage, of culture, of nations, of death, of the chosen people, of sin, of diet and clothes, of solar system, the list is almost endless. The meaning of all these things is dependent on their origin. In the same way, the meaning and purpose of the Christian gospel depends on the origin of the problem for which the Savior's death was and is the solution. This same problem of structure without a foundation is also reflected in another way. Many Christians may be against abortion, sexual deviancy, and other moral problems in society, yet they cannot give proper justification for their opposition. Most Christians have an idea of what is wrong and what is right, but they do not understand why. This lack of reason for our position is seen by others as just opinions. And why should our opinion be any more valid than that of someone else? It is not a matter of opinion yours or mine. It is what God says that matters. The basis for our thinking should be the principles from his word. They must determine our actions. To understand this, we must also appreciate that Genesis uh, is foundational to the entire Christian philosophy. One major difficulty in our churches is that many people do not trust Genesis. Consequently, they do not know what else in the Bible to trust. They treat the Bible as an interesting book containing some vague sort of religious truth 
This view is destroying the church and our society. It is time religious leaders woke up to that fact. To not take Genesis 1 through 11 literally is to do violence to the rest of Scripture, end quote. So obviously this is very important. Very important, so that's why we've taken a little extra time on this first part of the book. Because there's so much here, and so much is riding on our understanding uh, of this book, especially the first few chapters, that we need to really understand it. Now, as we have alluded to verse 1 numerous times, let me just read again Genesis 1, verse 1, which starts out, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. The word for God there is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim. That word is plural in the Hebrew, and therefore should be coupled with a plural verb and a plural pronoun to make it grammatically correct when it's used in a sentence. Let me just say this to you. Whenever the word Elohim appears in the Old Testament and it relates to the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, the verbs and pronouns are always in the singular, which makes the sentence grammatically incorrect, but communicates the triunity of God. In fact, one scholar said, and I quote, he must be strangely prejudiced indeed who cannot see that the doctrine of a trinity and of a trinity in unity is expressed in the above words, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, plural, created, singular, the heavens and the earth. Martin Luther said with respect to this, he said, and I quote, but we have clear testimony that Moses aimed to indicate the trinity or the three persons in the one divine nature, end quote. So the very first verse in the Bible gives us insight into the nature of God, that he is three separate persons in one God. That's a very important doctrine. Now, we read in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word here for created is bara, bara, and it means to create out of nothing. Only God has the ability to create ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Now, man, of course, can be creative in the way, way he puts or she puts together or assembles existing materials, things that God has already made. But only God can borrow. Only God can speak into existence something out of nothing. The closest we come to creating, quote-unquote, is in the reproducing of ourselves sexually. And that's why Satan has tried over the centuries to really pervert this by turning reproduction into a god and then the sex act into the worship of these pagan fertility gods and goddesses usually through uh, sexual perversion sexual orgies because god made man in his own image and after his own likeness whenever we procreate we create in a sense another individual made in god's likeness and satan hates that so the best way he can come against it is to pervert the whole thing perverting everything that God designed that was good and holy between a man and a woman in marriage, Satan perverting that. Of course, we see that quite a bit uh, today. A lot of sexual perversion as our, uh, as our nation moves farther and farther away from God. We see that this is escalating. It will come to fruition during the tribulation period when uh, after God pours out one horrific judgment after another, it says, I believe, in chapter 16, uh, that people would not repent of their idolatries and sorceries and sexual perversions. So it reaches a crescendo in the tribulation period for which God then judges mankind. But again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we've already said, guys, and just reviewing a little bit, 
that there are only two explanations for the existence of everything. Number one, everything came from nothing all by itself. That is naturalism. That's what naturalism teaches. Naturalism, of course, is the, is the ideology or the belief that, that everything uh, exists because of natural processes without any supernatural input. All right? So if you're a naturalist, an evolutionist, then you believe everything came from nothing all by itself. Of course, the other explanation is that everything came from an omniscient, omnipotent God. That's creationism. And that's, of course, what the Bible teaches. Now, it's interesting that scientists look down on the Bible. They look down on the Bible, most scientists, okay? They see it as a book of faith void of science. But as we've already learned through our foundations classes, uh, the word science means knowledge. It means knowledge. And just because in the Bible God chose to keep the language simple and non-technical doesn't mean that the Bible is void of the knowledge necessary to understand the physical universe. For example, evolutionary philosopher Herbert Spencer was one of Darwin's earliest and most enthusiastic followers. In the late 1800s, Spencer outlined five ultimate scientific ideas. All right? He said, time, force, action, space, and matter. These are categories that, according to Spencer, comprise everything that is susceptible to scientific examination. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 accounts for all of Spencer's categories. You ready? In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. So in the very first verse in the Bible, God laid out plainly and simply what no scientist discovered until the 19th century. But you have to be patient with the scientists because they've been playing catch-up with the Bible for centuries, literally. For example, there was a time when scientists laughed at the Bible because it said the stars in the heavens were innumerable. Scientists said, that's ridiculous. And they counted the stars. I saw or I heard several counts, uh, 6,000 plus. Somebody came up with 6,000. I forgot how many. Somebody else count, recounted. No, it's 6,000, this many. But since the invention of stronger telescopes, they now can see that the stars in the universe are more than can be numbered. In fact, to prove that, I went today onto NASA's website, okay, to a section called Ask an Astrophysicist. where people can, you know, submit questions and all. And I, sure enough, I found the question I was looking for. Someone had asked, in, you know, asked the astrophysicist, that someone asked the question, how many stars are there in the universe? Uh, here's the answer one of the NASA astrophysicists gave. I'm quoting now. There are too many stars for scientists to actually count one by one. So other methods of estimating the total number of stars are used. We believe that there are on the order of 10 to the 21st power of stars in our universe. This is a lot of stars, end quote. <laughs> yes, too many to count. We can see that scientists have finally come to understand what God has said in his word from the beginning. Now, in the Bible, God said that he sits above the circle of the earth and that he hung the sphere of the earth on nothing. It was a long time before scientists came to believe that the earth was 
not flat, it was round. And then it hangs on nothing. It was the Bible that says that things which are seen are made up of things that are invisible. Again, it took science, scientists many centuries before they discovered that the visible universe is made up of invisible particles, electrons, protons, neutrons that make up atoms. So everything that is visible is made up of things that are invisible, proving again the Bible is true. Look, here's the bottom line, right? Because we can go on and on, but you get the idea, all right? God didn't intend for his word to be, listen, a science textbook. First of all, because if it was technical in language, well, only our modern culture would be able to understand it. What about ancient man who didn't have access to all the cosmological uh, advances that we have come to take for granted? So if God used scientific, technical language in the Bible, first of all, it would have left out ancient man completely. And even then... Uh, only a few of us, not when I say us, I don't mean me, but only a few people today would be intelligent enough to read a technical book like that and understand it. Besides that, it would be many, many volumes long, wouldn't it? So you can forget about pocket New Testaments. God, in his wisdom, wanted to keep things simple and concise so that even children could read his word and comprehend it. And so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, have you ever tried to get your mind around how big the universe is and how many stars are in our universe? They don't really know for sure. They've given some estimates. As we said last time, a typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars. Our Milky Way galaxy contains anywhere from 300 million to 400 million stars. That's just in our galaxy. Our galaxy is shaped like a giant spiral rotating in space with arms reaching out like a pinwheel. And our sun is one star on one arm in the pinwheel. Scientists estimate that it would take 250 million years for this pinwheel, our galaxy, to make one rotation. And that's just our galaxy again. I mean, there are many other galaxies with many other shapes, including spirals, spherical clusters, and galaxies that are flat like pancakes. God has incorporated into the creation all kinds of variety. Uh, even we see that on Earth and uh, the animal kingdom and so on. But the average distance between one galaxy to another is about, listen, 20 million trillion miles from one galaxy to the other. Our closest galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, which is about 12 million trillion miles away. Now, I just want you to think about this. I'm a firm believer that once the Lord comes back for us and we get our glorified bodies and we move from earth, from time, into eternity, you know, when the millennial kingdom is over with and we move from time into eternity, I believe that God has created the universe as vast as it is. Because don't forget now, the whole universe has come under the curse. So even as beautiful and awesome as the universe is right now, it's still a product of the fall in many respects. So when the Lord, you know, fixes all the curse that sin brought into the world and the universe, can you imagine what the universe is going to be like when God recreates that? And he has made it so big and so vast, I believe, because it's going to take eternity for us to explore it. And I think we will have the ability to explore the universe not at the speed of light, that's too slow, at the speed of thought. 
In Revelation 20, it implies that we are going to be going on missions for the Lord in the eternal state. You say missions for the Lord. That's right. God created us to be productive. And there's no reason, you know, this idea of, of, of you know, laying on a cloud, playing a harp for eternity, that doesn't make anyone excited, okay? God made us to be productive. And we are going to serve him in some capacity in the eternal state. We are going to be going on missions for our king. And those missions may take us into the farthest reaches of the universe. And I believe one planet, one solar system, galaxy to be more beautiful than the, in the next. It's going to be truly uh, an incredible existence once, you know, we move past time into eternity. But listen, as great as the universe is, the God who created it is bigger still. I mean, the universe is big. That's true. Our God the one who made it is much bigger. I'll give you two scriptures, okay? Isaiah 48, verse 13, where God said, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, my hand, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. The Bible talks about God stretching out the universe like a curtain. In fact, one of the things scientists have discovered recently is that the universe is expanding. And, of course, they believe that proves the Big Bang Theory. That at one point, everything exploded and then things are moving outward from that explosion. But our Bible says that our God has stretched out the heavens like a curtain and continues to stretch them out. But I love what God said in Isaiah 40, verse 12. It says, God has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. He measured the heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. So what the psalmist is saying in a span is the distance between your index finger and your thumb. And they would measure with the span of their hand. The psalmist is saying God measures the universe with the span of his hand. That's how big he is. Now, sometimes you come across people that you're trying to witness to, and they're really stumbling over miracles in the Bible. And, you know, the idea of, you know, um, Jesus turning water to wine, walking on water... Uh, uh, healing the sick, and so on, uh, it really troubles them. They have a hard time with these concepts that, that Jesus did miracles, and we see miracles in the Old Testament, you know, the prophets and all, uh, and they have a, it's a stumbling block to them believing. Interestingly, a lot of those people, if you talk to them, they believe in God. And if you ask them, well, do you believe in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning God created the universe? Most often they will tell you, yes, I do believe that. And what I tell them is this. If you can believe the first verse in the Bible, okay, then everything else that follows, Noah and the worldwide flood, Jonah and the great fish, all the miracles that Jesus did, including turning water into wine, walking on water, multiplying small amounts of food to feed thousands of hungry people, even raising the dead. Listen, if you can believe the first verse in the Bible, to me, all the other stuff is just easy by comparison to believe. When you look at how vast the universe is, and that God spoke it into existence with the word of his power and holds it all together with that same word, why do we have trouble believing that God can rain bread down from heaven, part the Red Sea? I mean, everything else to me is downhill. Very easy. But let me just say this. As spectacular as the creation is, do you realize that only 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 are devoted to the entire creation. 
And listen to me. The rest of the entire Bible is devoted to redemption. Think about that. As incredible as the universe, the creation, only 31 verses in Genesis 1 are devoted to the creation of the whole physical universe. And yet the rest of the Bible is devoted to the subject of redemption. In fact, the Bible tells us in Psalm 8, verse 3, that creation was the work of God's fingers. The psalmist said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and he goes on. However, when it came to redemption, the Bible says that God bared his arms. Or in other words, he rolled up his sleeves. See, the work of redemption, or as Paul the Apostle put it, the new creation. Once we're redeemed, we are a new creation, right? And comparing the new creation rooted in redemption with the physical creation spoken of in Genesis chapter 1, well, we know nothing is hard for God, but from a human standpoint at least, we know the work of redemption was far more detailed, far more difficult than the work of the physical creation creating the universe physically that was not that was finger work for god why was redemption so much more difficult because god could speak the universe into existence he cannot speak a soul into redemption because that soul somebody has to pay for the sins that that person was born into and is committed god can't just speak a word and vaporize sin somebody has to pay for that sin People don't realize this. You know, we look at the universe and through these incredible telescopes that we have, like the Hubble telescope, and we see these distant galaxies, and we see the absolute size of the universe, and we're left awestruck and, and, and dumbfounded, and yet we take for granted the greatest work God has done, which is the work of redemption, where God had to really roll up his sleeves for that. The redemption of a human soul involved a price, listen, that no human being could pay. The psalmist said in Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8, None of them, no person, by any means, can redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. The redemption of a human soul, guys, is costly because no amount of money can purchase it, nor can another human being die to ransom it, because sinners can't die for sinners. The only ransom God would accept for the souls of sinful humanity was the life of his sinless son. Peter says this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Peter says, Knowing that you were redeemed, excuse me, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. In other words, the innocent dying for the guilty. All right, well, again, back in Genesis 1. We read one more time in the beginning, God created the heavens. Now, what is he talking about? What are these heavens? Well, I believe in this context, God is talking, the Holy Spirit working through Moses is telling us that when he said, when in the beginning, God created the heavens. Okay, he's talking about outer space and the earth, of course. And verse two says the earth was without form and void. The earth was without form and void. Now, I'm going to be quoting a little bit from Dr. Henry Morris from his incredible work, The Genesis Record. Dr. Morris is with the Lord right now, uh, at this moment, uh, but he was a well-known scientist, 
brilliant man, devoted Christian, but he's written a book on Genesis, and especially keying on the first few chapters, called the Genesis Record. And he brings some scientific insight into the plain, simple language that we're used to in the first few verses, especially in Genesis. Let me, let me draw from what he says. But with regard to the first two verses of Genesis chapter 1, uh, Dr. Morris paraphrases these, these two verses this way. He said, and I quote, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or space and matter is the idea. And the matter so created was at first unformed and uninhabited. And so what Dr. Morris is saying is that God originally made, made the materials or the building blocks from which he fashioned the matter of the universe. Now, I, I bring this out, not only because you need to know that. I believe that he's, he's accurate. I believe that in the first, well, verse 2 especially, what God is saying here is that he brought forth the matter necessary to form the physical universe from the building blocks, the raw materials, you might say. Why did God do it that way? I don't know. But this is the way he chose to do it. Now, I bring this up because there are those who believe in what's called the gap theory. What is the gap theory? Well, it's the belief that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, there is a gap of time where Satan rebelled against God and was judged by the Lord and his domain, which was the earth, was judged and destroyed as well. These folks point out that the Hebrew in verse 2 translated, and the earth was without form and void, and the Hebrew is tohu vavohu, which is often connected, that sentence, that those words, are often connected with judgment in the Old Testament, and therefore they say Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 should actually be translated, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth became ruined and desolate. And again, they say this speaks of a divine cataclysmic judgment from God upon the earth for Satan's rebellion. You know, we read about that rebellion in heaven, the five I wills of Satan. I will be like the Most High, right? He was uh, created by God to be uh, number two in heaven, above all the other angels. He didn't want to be number two. He wanted to be God. And so he rebelled, led a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. And Lucifer fell. These angels fell. Many became demons. The rest fallen angels. And they say this all happened between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that Satan rebelled. He was judged. His planet was judged. This was his domain, which left the earth in a chaotic and ruined condition. And they point to Isaiah 45, verse 18. Let me read it to you. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. Listen to that last part again. Thus says the Lord, who created everything, heavens and earth, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. The word vain there in verse 18 of Isaiah 45 is the Hebrew word tohu. It's the same word translated void in Genesis 1 verse 2. So what they're claiming is this, that God is telling us in Isaiah 45, 18, that he did not create the world in vain or ruined and desolate. He created it fully formed and functional, ready to be inhabited. That's the basic idea behind the gap theory. 
And the idea is that God would never have created the world chaotic, without form and void. God doesn't work like that. First of all, who knows how God works, really? Okay, who's going to tell God how he should do things? But they assume God would never make things, you know, without form and void and then assemble what he has made into the physical universe. Well, why not? If God chose to do it that way for a reason, there's nothing wrong with that. And God is indicating to us that seems to be exactly what he did. He's not hiding it from us. But these folks say, no, 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 something happened that made it void and without form and void, desolate and ruined. Again, I'll quote Dr. Henry Morris on this. He said, and I quote, Such an interpretation of Genesis 1 verse 2, however, is very forced and unnatural. The word tohu can carry various shades of meaning. It occurs 20 times in the Old Testament and is translated in the King James Version no less than 10 different ways, like vanity, confusion, empty place, nothing, etc. Its proper translation depends on the specific context, and the best translation in the context of Genesis 1 verse 2 is exactly as the King James scholars rendered it, without form. Similarly, the context of Isaiah 45 verse 18, having to do with God's purpose for the land of Israel, makes the best translation there to be in vain. Paraphrasing, the message can be read, God created not the earth to be forever unformed and uninhabited, he formed it to be inhabited. The creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1 tells the steps by which he brought form to the unformed earth and living inhabitants to the empty surface. There is certainly no contradiction with the statement in Genesis 1 verse 2 that the initial creation was of basic elements rather than a completed system. The initial creation was not perfect in the sense that it was complete, but it was perfect for that first stage of God's six-day plan for creation. Likewise, the word bohu does not connote a desolation but simply emptiness. When initially created, the earth had no inhabitants. It was void. The essential meaning, therefore, is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, in other words, space and matter, and the matter so created was at first unformed and uninhabited. The created cosmos, as discussed earlier, was a tri-universe of space, time, and matter. Initially, there were no stars or planets, only the basic, only the basic matter component of the space-matter-time continuum. The elements which were to be formed into the planet Earth were at first only elements, not yet formed, but nevertheless comprising the basic matter, the dust of the earth, he says, end quote. So that's a very strong view on what God is saying here. And I believe Morris has probably got it right. Now let me just say this about the gap theory and we'll move on. Most gap theory proponents claim that in this gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 is where all the fossils came from and that's where we get the extreme age of the earth. Now, I'm not an old earth guy. I'm a young earth guy. I believe the earth is less than 10,000 years old. But because some want to capitulate to scientists, uh, they, they want to come up with a, an explanation of everything that satisfies, because, of course, evolutionists, they're all old earth people. You can't have evolution without time. So you have to have you know billions of years. And so these folks trying to accommodate these scientists and lend credibility to what they believe the Bible is saying, 
say, well, you know, in between Genesis 1 1, Genesis 1 2, you have this gap of time. Could have been billions of years. That's where the fossils came from. That's where the extreme age of the earth comes from. Listen to me. Even if the gap theory was true, and let me just say this to you, all right? I, I took a lot of time this afternoon studying the gap theory. Now, I used to be a proponent of the gap theory. I've come to believe that probably it's reading a little too much into the verses, the white space between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 of Genesis. However, James Montgomery Boyce, an excellent commentator, uh, on his commentary on Genesis, has a very lengthy section where he quotes very well-known, very scholarly uh, individuals, Christians, who give extensive reasons why the gap theory is true. And you have to read these arguments to realize, you know what, if you dismiss it quickly, you're not really looking at the, the arguments. These are not, it's not a stupid theory. Uh, and it could be right. It could be true. I don't know. I'm just telling you that as I stand here right now tonight, I'm thinking that probably as interesting as it is to think about, probably the gap theory is just a fanciful kind of a thing that people have stuck between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 of Genesis, but it's not really true. But let me just say this. Even if the gap theory was true, it can't be used to explain the extinction of dinosaurs, the age of the earth, or the fossil record. Because the Bible clearly says, clearly, that all death came into the world to the universe, uh, including death of stars and solar systems and all of that. All death came into being because of Adam's sin, which Paul mentions in Romans 5, verse 12, uh, that all death came from Adam. And as a result, since fossils are the result of death, they couldn't have happened before Adam's sin. So even if the gap theory is true, you can't use it to explain fossils and things like that and dinosaurs and because death didn't come until Adam's sin. All right? Just, I think that's pretty obvious. All right, once again, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Darkness was on the face of the deep. The word darkness here doesn't really imply any evil, but simply, as Henry Morris puts it, and I quote, the physical universe at this point was neither formed nor energized, and light is a form of energy. The absence of physical light means darkness, just as the absence of form and inhabitants means a universe in elemental form yet not completed, end quote. So darkness was on the face of the deep. What is the deep? Well, we believe it's a reference to the waters of the ocean that covered the earth at this point completely. Uh, we know that God did not form the dry ground until later on. And so at this point, it seems like the earth and uh, the, the matter, I should say, uh, the earth wasn't formed yet, but the matter that made up the earth is, was, was going to make up the earth in you know, just a, a little while. And the water molecules that was all there, ready for God to fashion them, Right. And so the deep is a reference to the waters that would eventually become the oceans that covered the earth. And again, Henry Morris gives us his perspective on what Genesis 1 verse 2 is actually saying. Let me read it to you. He says, and I quote, Initially the earth had no form, but similarly this state must apply to the waters also. The picture presented is one of all the basic material elements sustained in a pervasive watery matrix throughout the darkness of space. Now, folks, 
I don't claim to understand everything Morris is saying. But I just want to present it to you because he's one of the few guys that will give you some of the scientific insights that could be what God is alluding to right here in these first couple of verses of Genesis 1. All right. So he says, uh, the picture presented here is all the basic material elements sustained in a pervasive watery matrix throughout the darkness of space. The same picture, he says, is suggested in 2 Peter 3, verse 5, where Peter says, the earth standing out of water and in water, which is Peter talking about the creation, okay? The earth standing out of the water and in the water. That's what Peter said. Morris goes on to say, elements of matter and molecules of water were present, but not yet energized. The force of gravity was not yet functioning to draw such particles together into a coherent mass with a definite form. Neither were the electromagnetic forces yet in operation, and everything was in darkness. The physical universe had come into existence, but everything was still and dark, no form, no motion, no light, end quote. Well, it goes on to say in Genesis 1 verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the word spirit there is the Hebrew word ruach. The thing about the word ruach is that it's the same word translated breath and wind in the Old Testament. And the context determines what is the proper translation. Same Hebrew word can be translated spirit, breath, or wind. The context is what determines the correct Meaning, and here in Genesis 1, verse 2, listen, there is no doubt about the context, okay? It points unmistakably to the creative activity of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. This activity, guys, of the Holy Spirit is called that of hovering over the face of the waters. That Hebrew word appears only three times in the Old Testament. Once here, and two other places, Jeremiah 23, verse 9, Deuteronomy 32, verse 11. Let me read those to you. Jeremiah 23, verse 9, where Jeremiah says, My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. He's talking about the false prophets that he was constantly coming up against, that the people were listening to. All right? My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones, listen, shake. That's that Hebrew word. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of his holy words. In other words, people are not listening to God's word. They're not obeying what God has said. I know judgment's coming, therefore I shake, my bones shake at the thought of what's coming. Is the idea. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11 says, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, that's that Hebrew word, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. And let me read to you one last time from Dr. Henry Morris's book, The Genesis Record, because he gives to us, again, the scientific insights that we sometimes are helpful in understanding what God is saying here. He said, and I quote, the idea seems to be mainly that of rapid back and forth motion. The three places where this Hebrew word is used and again, Genesis 1, verse 2, primarily, we're looking at that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What does that mean? Well, Morris says that the, the main idea of this Hebrew word uh, is a rapid back-and-forth motion. 
In modern scientific terminology, the best translation would probably be vibrated. Vibrated. If the universe is to be energized, he said, there must be an energizer, capital E. If it is to be set in motion, there must be a prime mover, again in capitals. It is significant, he said, that the transmission of energy in the operations of the cosmos is in the form of waves, light waves, heat waves, sound waves, and so forth. In fact, he says, except for the nuclear forces which are involved in the structure of matter itself, there are only two fundamental types of forces that operate on matter, the gravitational forces and the forces of the electromagnetic spectrum. All are associated with fields of activity and with transmission by wave motion. Waves are typically rapid back-and-forth movements, and they are normally produced by the vibratory motion of a wave generator of some kind. Energy cannot create itself. It is most appropriate that the first impartation of energy to the universe is described as the vibrating movement of the Spirit of God himself. As the outflowing energy from God's omnipresent Spirit began to flow outward, and to permeate the cosmos. Gravitational forces were activated, and water and earth particles came together to form a great sphere moving through space. Other such particles would soon come together also to form sun, moon, and stars throughout the universe. Now there was a compass on the face of the deep, and the formless earth had assumed the beautiful form of a perfect sphere. It was now ready for light and heat and other forms of enlivening energy, end quote. All right, enough talking about what most of us don't understand, okay? Let me just close by saying this. We talked last week about how that uh, evolutionist scientists believe that the universe is a closed system, all right, a closed system. And that because it's a clo in a closed system, energy is used up. Unless you can replenish it, if it's closed, you just use up what's there. We talked about the gas tank of your car. Uh, when you pull into a gas station, you open your gas cap to your gas tank. You put the, the gas nozzle in the, in the opening there. You turn it on. You are filling up your gas tank with usable fuel, energy. You take the spout out. You put the cap on your gas tank. Now you've turned your car into a closed system. And as you drive that vehicle, the, the fuel is used up. Well, what God did was he created the universe and then he filled it with energy. The Spirit of God began to vibrate. As he vibrated, he filled the universe with energy that now God has kind of closed off the system and all this usable energy is being, being used up. We talked about the second law of thermodynamics, which says in a closed system, usable energy is used up. It's called entropy. Things are going from order to disorder from uh, integration to disintegration. We are getting older and things are wearing out and so on. All of this is the result of the fact that God cranked up the universe. He, he created it, filled it with energy, and now it's running down. Scientists no longer believe the universe is eternal because they know its stars are dying, energy is being used up, therefore the universe is going to have an end at one point, so therefore, now they have to concede that it has had a beginning. If it had a beginning, it had to have a beginning cause. And we talked about that last week, all right? And so 
All of this in simple language. Think of, think of how simple the first two verses of Genesis is. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void. Uh, darkness on the face of the deep. Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. There's an awful lot that God is saying in those, in those simple terms. What we can take away from that is this. Our God is a very big God. He's a very big God. The universe is so enormous that we can't even get our mind around it. And yet God measures it with the span of his hand. And I'll tell you what, if we're going to take anything away from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we need to take away this, that there is a God, and because there is a God who made everything and everyone, we are all accountable to that God. He has given each of us life. The Bible says every beat of our heart, every breath that we take is a gift from God. Therefore, we owe this deity our lives, our existence. In him we live and move and have our being, which means we must bow before him in humble submission, which is the only thing that makes sense if you believe he's real. And yet, those that refuse to acknowledge God do so because they want to live a life of rebellion. They want to do what they want to do. They don't want God telling them how to live their life. Do you realize, guys, that that this new rise in atheism and even the whole belief in evolution is all an attempt to deny the existence of God so that man can do the very thing Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that man knows that God is real, but he suppresses that knowledge in his desire to live unrighteously. That's what it is. I mean, any child knows you cannot have something that came from nothing. Everything that exists had to have a cause. A sculpture had to have a sculptor. A painting had to have a painter. A building had to have a builder. You know, the creation declares God's existence. It declares God's glory. And I'll tell you what, those that, as Paul said, look out into the creation and still deny the existence of God are going to be held accountable by God on the day of judgment because he has made all of us intelligent enough to know that you can't have a creation without a creator. If there's a creator, the one who made everyone and everything, then we are bound to bow before him in humble submission and say, God, I give to you my life. And of course, because of the New Testament, we know so much more about him than even Moses did when he wrote this. We know his son. We know what Jesus has done. And we are to bow the knee before him and acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior. Because the Bible says the day is coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Those who do it now while they're still alive on the earth will enter into an eternity with him in glory. Those that refuse and die, and someday will stand before him on the day of judgment, they will bow the knee. They will acknowledge he is real. But it'll be too late. Today is the day of salvation, right? Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 have an awful lot of implications. I pray that God will give everyone grace, especially here tonight, who hasn't fully bowed to him and said, Lord Jesus, you have made all things. Your word is clear. By you, all things were made. Without you, nothing was made that was made. And therefore, Lord, because you have made all things and have made me, I bow to you. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. I give you control. 
Take me and use me. You're my master. That's a glorious beginning. See, we talk about in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul says there's a greater creation than that. You know, God said, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1. Well, Paul says, when God made us the new creation, he started off by saying, let there be light. Boom, lights went on. Oh, wow. You know, I, I get it. God's real. His word is real. I know why I'm here now. I know what life's all about. I know where I'm going someday. The new creation is even more incredible than the first creation. So may God give us grace to grapple with some of these things. They're absolutely incredible to think about. And God willing, next week we will continue on. And yes, we will move past now to uh, verses 1 and 2. And uh, I think you'll see some very interesting things, though, coming up. So we'll save that for next time. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Your word is so simple and yet, Lord, so profound. A child can read it and understand for the most part. Yet the greatest theologians spend their entire lives without even scratching the surface studying your word. Scientists, when their eyes are opened and they become believers like Dr. Morris, all of a sudden they recognize that the Bible, although using simple terms, non-technical language, speaks volumes. If we'll just look a little bit. Everything that science has proven in the last 200 years, your word has been saying for centuries. Lord, we, we need never be ashamed of your word. And especially, we need never be ashamed of the first book in your word. So, Lord, thank you that you've spoken and done so in simple terms. Give us grace, Lord, to read, to understand, and to apply all that you've given to us. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.